Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. What do whales listen to on long journeys? Podcasts. We have that in common. How much salt do crabs like on their food? Just a pinch. My guest today is Kate Morrison, the Strategic Partnership Director for the Ocean Foundation. Her job? Matchmaking. Kate is the magician that connects science and conservation efforts to the sources of funding with similar intentions and goals. In today's episode, we chat about Kate's winding path starting as a marine biology major and the shift from marine science to ultimately graduating with a master's in marine affairs. Kate has been on the ground floor of several ocean policy initiatives on the eastern seaboard of the U.S., and she shares her experiences and lessons learned. She has a great outlook on adapting to and willfully creating change in your own life. And I loved her answer to the blank check question. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Please enjoy. Kate, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Right now, you are the Strategic Partnerships Director at the Ocean Foundation. Could you explain a little bit like what that means? Sure. So the Ocean Foundation is the only community foundation for the ocean. And so that means that we have to raise every dollar we spend. We're not like other private foundations that operate off a large endowment where a family you know, might have left um, several hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so we really work together to um, you know, grow the pie of philanthropy that is available toward ocean conservation advising donors, working on corporate partnerships, and my team, um, external relations, we specifically work on fundraising, marketing, and communications. So I run that that part of our, our team. Amazing. And the Ocean Foundation, I mean, there there is so much to that pie. It does, I mean, there's a lot of projects that the Ocean Foundation is in, and a couple of them, like the main initiatives, I've, I mean, I found really fascinating. One of them was redesigning plastics. I like that you guys are kind of tackling this like huge global issue. Could you explain a little bit more about like one of your favorite initiatives? I think that definitely is um, of the three, the one that I find the most compelling because we're, um, you know, picking an aspect of that uh, global challenge that nobody else is really working on. And so a lot of people are on the waste management recycling end of that circular economy, so to speak, of, um, you know, plastics are used and then end up in the ocean or in the coasts, Mm -hmm. Um, beach cleanups, that sort of thing. Others are working on consumer-facing campaigns, skip the straw, use an alternative cloth bag, for example. 
Um, but nobody we found was really looking at the very beginning of that circle, which is how do you change the way plastics are made in the first place to make them safer, more simplified and more standardized so that you can design for recyclability and make plastics as easily recyclable as glass and aluminum are today. So we're really working on going back to that original chemical equation and seeing if there's a way to um, reverse the chemical reaction backwards, so to speak, and um, make it simpler in the first place. Yeah, it's something that as like an end consumer, you don't think a lot about like, you know, most people are familiar with the little numbers and the uh, triangles with the arrows around them on their plastic containers. And there's different numbers for different levels of recyclability. But all of that indicates a different level of chemical composition and whether or not it actually can be recycled at all or in certain processes. So yeah, I love that you guys, I mean, you in your websites is like, re-engineering, rethinking, redesigning plastics in order to make it um, better end product, basically, for all of us to be able to close the loop. Right. And part of that work is also working with governments internationally and and elsewhere to um, make sure that there's mandates that eventually can um, change the way plastics are made and have manufacturers follow the guidance. And so my colleague Erica works um, really hard at trying to negotiate that sort of language with governments, whether it's an international treaty or in like a piece of national legislation um, to make sure that things are set up in the right frameworks to begin with to be followed. Yeah, that's super cool. And other projects, we talked about ocean acidification last week with Caitlin Lauder. I love the idea of, you know, enabling. (laughs) We called you guys the enablers. Um, You know, kind of getting everybody, it's more than just funneling money to projects. It's actually like, getting the tools and the training to places that wouldn't wouldn't otherwise have access to it and mm-hmm. getting that pH data from around the world, which I thought was amazing. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's, um, and again, it's another place where, you know, as a community foundation, um, we developed our core initiatives out of the fact that we didn't want to be redundant with others in our community, but rather support that work. And so the ocean acidification program that Caitlin um, helps to run is definitely another example of how we, we um, did something no one else was working on at the time. So how did you get into the role at the Ocean Foundation? Sure. So I'm not, I think, you know, my path was a bit nonlinear. And so (laughs) it might help to sort of explain sort of my path starting from college throughout um, to sort of explain um, kind of the sequence that I, that I fell into, which a little bit of a patchwork crazy quilt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's do that then. So you have, you have an undergrad actually from Ecker College, which I, I love it's down in Florida as well. What inspired you to go to Eckerd? I did actually grow up in Florida. I grew up um, about 45 minutes north of where Eckerd is located. So um, on the coastline across the street from from the water. And I saw a lot of changes over time in the broader community in the coastal um, area. And so I spent a lot of time at Honeymoon Island State Park, which is in Dunedin Palm Harbor area, um, which was protected years and years ago. So I always had sort of an aversion to development and an appreciation for sand dunes and the natural state. Um, And it was also, you know, part of my school curriculum in elementary school, um, planting mangroves when I was in third grade. So I always knew that that was really going to be my thing. I didn't really have an aha moment um, later on. And then I um, went to Eckerd, as you noted. I started in marine biology. It's a small liberal arts school where you start in your major your first semester, um, which is a little different from some other other setups. And so I quickly saw my aptitude was really for research and writing and communicating, not the tedious titration experiments or, you know, what are the Latin names for the marine invertebrate paleontology and all of that. 
Um, and I got to do a seminar class at the United Nations through through um, college and thought that the policy frameworks internationally were, were way more interesting than writing the lab reports. And so um, <laughs> I um, also at that time, I interned with a manatee population project at a time when the state was negotiating how slow the speed zone should be for boat traffic. Mm-hmm. And um, they used our data as part of the justification to show where those regulations should be. Mm-hmm. And so we used the data to make actual change. And that's when I was sold. I was like, this is what I want to do. Something on the applied side that also plays to my strengths. So that's sort of my growing up and, and college experience. Amazing. Yeah, it's funny. Uh when you grow up in nature and you like see changes like that, like you mentioned honey, honeymoon park, like it can be very impactful. So I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. And I also really love that you recognize in college, you know, a lot of people go into, I want to be a marine biologist and they just beat their head mm-hmm. up against the wall until they graduate. And then they're like, I didn't really want to do this, but I said, I want, like I said, I was going to, so I did it. Mm-hmm. But I like that you were able to kind of pivot and still keep that um, environmental aspect, that Marine aspect to it. But make your influence in a uh, way that resonated with you and your strengths better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So did you know right away that you wanted to get your master's degree or did you take some time off? I did. So part of that sort of realization about that I was not going to be a marine biologist was actually because I was told that I was not going to be a marine biologist most likely based on sort of how I was performing and not in organic chemistry specifically among others. Um, And it was really hard at the time because I was like, well, this is what I'm set out to do. And I'm a female and we're told we can, we can do whatever we want to do. Right. And especially in the sciences, you want to try to, you know, continue with whatever you, you um, picked despite all the challenges, but just really was not in the cards. And I was doing so much better in these other aspects, which I ended up liking. I preferred anyway. And so I actually went to grad school right after college. Um, um, to University of Washington out in Seattle and studied marine affairs, which is an interdisciplinary program, marine resource management, takes some economics, some law, some science um, to study, you know, how, how to do marine resource management. And that was um, the, the basis for um, some research I did in West Africa. I went to Africa for about six months by myself to talk to fishing communities and and research sort of how that was working in in a five country region um, on the west coast there, and this new international was was really um, an interesting aspect of it for me. So again, getting the information and trying to apply it um, for change, or just understanding the challenges that different governments had along those lines. Yeah. Um, so that was the next step I took after after college. I love it. So I want to I want to come back to Africa in a second. I'm really curious. I mean, Eckerd College in South Florida is a very far away from University of Washington. What? <laughs> Why did you choose to go there for your master's? There's only about three schools at the time, at least, that offered what I was looking for. So that was that was part of it. And then, um, you know, I think one was in Rhode Island at the time in Washington State. And I thought it would be less snow, possibly, in the Seattle area. And so got in my two-door Honda Civic and drove across country and, uh, and uh, made my way. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I'm sure it was beautiful. Tell me about Africa. You said you were in five different countries and you were talking to fishermen. What kind of what were you collecting? What information were you getting? 
So I was studying the artisanal fishing sector, which is like the small scale sector. They use smaller boats. They go out for just a day, not lengthy trips at sea, um, which is more of like what we call the industrial sector. And so these were people that were really, you know, fishing for sustenance for their daily, daily um, food security or just to take it to local market um, for basic provisions for their community. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because a lot of um, the resources at the time and now are being taken away by the European Union, by China, by other countries that have larger vessels that are more efficient um, through these joint venture arrangements, which is a relationship a country has with another country's government to basically take the fisheries resources for a, a very, very low fee, nothing at all compared to what the market value of those fish or seafood commodities could be. And so I was sort of studying what what um, causes that relationship to exist and part of its you know, data availability and just political power and access. And so um, I was you know, traveling through five countries there to to just learn more about that and came away, you know, learning a lot more about sort of a changing worldview on poverty and consumption and access to power structures that I sort of take through my everyday. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, you know, I knew um, other countries fishing in African waters was a phenomenon, but I didn't realize that they were actually there were set allocations for each country and then other countries would just buy it for a less expensive price off of other countries in order to fish these waters. Like, could you explain that a little bit more? Um, It's, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to explain the details of, I guess. Um, And it's been now almost over 20 years that I was there. Um, And it's basically um, a country that has less power, but needs more, you know, you know, funds for the government coffers. Some of it's honestly taken, some of it's bribes, frankly. There's a lot of corruption that is a challenge as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if they don't have the boats to go out to fish some of these resources, they figure, well, we'll just have this other country come in and um, they'll cut us a check and then they're going to take way more than we than we thought they were because we don't even know how much is out there. The baseline data these countries have is so low and minimal and poor quality because they don't have the basic scientific infrastructure to do the regular assessments Mm -hmm. that they don't even know what they're losing actually. And so there's a lot of also um, mixed in what's called illegal underreported unregulated fisheries Mm -hmm. um, happening in an overlapping sense. So um, in addition to the arrangements where it is a signed piece of paper, there's a lot going on um, that is not regulated and that is not monitored because again, there's not the enforcement and surveillance in place in some of these um, lesser developed places um, to make sure that they're protecting their resources, which are, which are theirs. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. I knew IUU fishing was a big deal mm-hmm. there, but I didn't realize that there was like also this pseudo sanctioned mm-hmm. fishery happening too. Right. I mean, you can go to a market um, in West Africa and there's a box of fish and it says product of China, mm. but I was standing in West Africa. <laughs> So it's really, it's really interesting how all of that works. Yeah, that's strange. That's really strange. We leave Africa, we graduate from grad school. And what was your next step? Did you like, did you know that you wanted to get your PhD or not? Sounds like not. Um, Or were you looking to get some real world experience at this point? So my program was a terminal master's program. So there wasn't a PhD option. I thought about law school. Um, you know, as I think a lot of people do that, that come out of the sciences into the policy side. Um, 
and then I didn't really want to do Peace Corps or other sorts of um, long-term volunteering to really get the in-country experience that I would have needed to be competitive mm-hmm. in international policy for oceans. Um, so I ended up having a personal move across country again in the same Honda Civic <laughs> um, to Boston, <laughs> um, where I worked retail um, jobs to intern for free for the state government at the time that was dealing with when the first wind farms were being discussed in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, and so um, through an alumni connection, always leverage alumni networks, I think <laughs> I should double down on that. Um, and folded t-shirts at night so I could go and, and talk to these people about um, how to manage resources during the day. And, and it was a really, really interesting opportunity. And there were different people with different viewpoints, you know, some yelling, um, getting around the table, drawing on maps and negotiating their interests. And it paved the way for a lot of states and regions in the rest of the U.S. to talk about ocean management or marine spatial planning. So that was kind of my first grown up job outside of grad school. Yeah. So you well, OK, there's two things I want I want to take away from what you just said. One, I love that you brought up like you volunteered to get experience and make the mm-hmm. connections to get your future jobs um and then in order to pay the bills because most all of us have bills to pay you got a job that did that um i i've had to do that i know a lot of people i've worked with have had to do it and it's something that not a lot of people talk about or it's not asked i guess and um, it's something that i encourage my listeners to always get experience and experience may be paid and it may not and if it's not paid then it's okay to go get a job as a barista or folding t-shirts or mm-hmm. at plant nursery to pay the bills. So mm-hmm. I love that you brought that up. It also makes you a better customer because you've been on the other side of the counter. <laughs> so you, you always recall that you always know those experiences stay with you. So that's interesting. It's very true. That's very true. Also, so you said you were working for the state and were you working for like different stakeholders, kind of bringing them all together? So you had like fishermen and like government and recreational users? Yep. So the um, the state agency is is called the Coastal Zone Management Agency, and each coastal state has one in the U.S., and it was their responsibility at the time um, to figure out what do we do with this Cape Wind wind farm proposal. We've never seen anything like this before. And so they created a task force that I helped staff where all of the people that you just mentioned were, were gathered around the table, um, you know, trying to figure out what to do. Because at the time, people did think it was going to go through and get permitted. Is this your the first Massachusetts ocean plan? It was, yes. Okay. At the, I'm going to butcher the name, Sologen Bank National Marine Sanctuary? Stellwagen. Mm-hmm. Stellwagen. Mm. See, told you it was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, very cool. So what was the end result of it? So we passed the first ocean management plan um, through a piece of legislation in this process, um, you know, which was great. And the state still has one today. They keep renewing it every five years, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, It led into regional discussions to stand up the um, Northeast Regional Ocean Council, which continues today to work at a regional scale. And there's there's others around the country. The Cape Wind um, project itself did not go through. partially because it was the first one of its time and the state and federal authorities didn't really have a plan in place, which is very different than how the context is now along the East Coast, at least with a lot of these projects actually finally going to water. But it took a project like that back in 2003, 2004 to really raise the questions so people could begin to develop frameworks to think about how these things could actually make sense in the ocean. Yeah. And now they're kind of popping up all over the place. Mm-hmm. That's really amazing work. So. 
after this, you had, you know, you got your experience under your belt. How did you make the next step? So um, I also I was thinking in reflection leading up to today's conversation that sort of the words that characterize my past or my current, you know, career is just sort of I get impatient and I really like to do new things and start new things. And that's kind of the reason why I've taken certain steps. And so, um, you know, after a few years doing the work we just discussed, I um, got to help start the first marine program at the Nature Conservancy in Massachusetts. So two streets down from where my other office was and people that were on the other side of the table in the ocean planning process, um, I got to work with them and, and develop sort of what conservation might look like in a coastal marine sense in, in Massachusetts, which is really challenging um, because it's a state where the fishing industry is king. There's a sacred cod statue hanging in the state legislature in the lobby. That's how ingrained the fishing industry is. And, you know, just the history and the maritime cultural heritage of the area is understandable. So, um, and through the work at the Nature Conservancy, it's a land conservation group traditionally, but at the time they were starting to have marine programs in a lot of their states, which mm -hmm. operate sort of separate autonomous offices. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the great things I got to do there was to work with some pretty brave government people um, off record meeting in coffee shops and outside of the office um, to lead to the first oyster restoration project in a state where, as I mentioned, the fishing industry is, is pretty powerful. So, um, and there's a lot of shellfish projects going on now in Massachusetts and a lot of people came together to make those happen so that it's okay to keep some shellfish aside and not harvest them all, you know, and, and um, make sure there's there something there for future generations. I worked in Maryland and it's a similar maritime culture and that you know it's it goes back generations and generations of these mm -hmm. watermen right and mm -hmm. they think it's their right to be able to work on the water and mm -hmm. um in any sort of change just they feel like personally threatened by um so it's very interesting it's you know i always find when you get most of them there's always outliers but most of them one-on-one -on -one and kind of explain why you know restoration is necessary um, and what you're really trying to do, and really what you're trying to do is preserve the culture that's there anyway. Most of them are okay with it, but I can imagine you had some serious, uh, interesting conversations at least. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You grow a thick skin, that's for sure. But you have to respect someone's passion for, for what they have done for hundreds of years in their family at the same time. So it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we also did... Was it just oysters or did you do other shellfish? And you also did eelgrass, which is really awesome. Yes. Yeah, we had, well, we tried to do eelgrass. There was, um, it's not the greatest place for that because Cape Cod is mostly on septic systems. And so we didn't really find a lot of good locations for some of that work, but um, learned a lot about, you know, how to figure out is the site suitable or does the site make sense to have a restoration project before you go in and make that big investment. Um, and oysters were the the main um, item at the time that we worked on. Okay. So eelgrass didn't work because of septic systems, and this is because septic systems leak and they're causing water quality issues that made undesirable conditions for eelgrass. Right. So we didn't pursue those projects because it would have been a likelihood of failure probably. Fair enough. Not There's everybody understands quality. the connection between septics and <laughs> seagrass. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> So, I mean, this work seems really incredible to be on the ground floor of the Nature Conservancy's like maritime endeavors, right? 
So what made you take a step towards the Sargasso Sea Commission? Sure. So um, at the time, I was just thinking about, you know, okay, I've done this, this work in Massachusetts. We have been there for several years and thought, you know, maybe going back to the international space was was a good a good decision to go back to sort of i guess my educational roots and so i came to washington dc um to help run a new project which was the sargasso sea project um at the time that eventually evolved into a commission where governments came together voluntarily to protect a shared space of the sargasso sea which is a large area surrounding bermuda um characterized by the a floating brown algae called sargassum, which mm-hmm. can go all the way from Texas to the Azores out in Portugal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so no one really knows where it begins and where it ends and it changes frequently. There's no one map per se. Mm-hmm. It's a ambulatory line um, people have referred to it as. And so um, it's, it's great habitat for juvenile species, uh, marlin fish, sea turtles, migratory quarters. Um, so it's a really huge habitat value and um, governments were coming together to see if there were ways to uh, make sure that it stays that way. Very cool. Now, you said this like wasn't even a, a full commission yet, and you drove down from Massachusetts to, D- to D.C. for it. How did you find out about the job? I think it was on um, just, you know, a listserv. I don't remember the name of the listserv, okay. but any you know, networking, I think is the theme here too, you know, is always make sure you stay in touch with people because you never know where they're going to pivot next. (laughs) Um, And so it was just kind of a cold call um, resume submission and came and um, slept on my friend's couch for a couple of days to do the interview process. And, um, and uh, just went from there just, but took a risk. I mean, we didn't know if it was going to work. So um, came down and, uh, and just just tried something new. It was had um, credibility in the sense that the place of the Sargasso Sea was known to be a place worth protecting because Sylvia Earle had named it one of her hope spots mm-hmm. previously. Mm-hmm. And so that was really amazing to have her support um, and um, you know endorsement, so to speak, on, on that geographic area being worthy of such a commission. And then I sort of you know took a, a, a turn back to U.S. domestic work. Um, mm-hmm you know, after that commission was, was stood up and sort of, you know, the um, near-term goal was accomplished, so to speak, it still is um, operating today. And Mark Spalding, who's president of the Ocean Foundation, is one of the commissioners in kind of a fun full circle um, <laughs> moment. That is <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, so I, after that experience, stayed in the area and worked um, regionally in the mid-Atlantic working in support of an executive order on regional ocean planning. And so this was similar to the Massachusetts work of um, how do you get different agencies around the table? There's over, I think, 29 agencies on the federal side in the government that have some way in which they they touch the ocean or have to be involved in a project or, or use happening offshore, which is quite um, a lot of alphabet soup to, to work through. And some of these agencies the individuals had never even met each other before. So we had people from the Coast Guard finally meeting the person at the state of, of such and such, you know, so now if there was an issue in their waters, they had a person to call, not just, you know, sort of a, a generic federal agency relationship where you would go through some official process. Yeah. And so it was really, really interesting to see that come together. Yeah, that's um, fascinating. And that's, we did, that's what I was going to mm-hmm. ask, 29 agencies, how many? Mm-hmm. Are, that includes the military then, or at least the Coast Guard. 
Right. Yeah. The Joint Chiefs of Staff were included. Um, and so we had um, the Navy and the Coast Guard and others, others there, Army Corps of Engineers, Maryland Protection Agency, Department of Energy, um, lots then, of Department of Interior. And not to mention all the state stakeholders as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tribes as well. The, um, the tribal governments um, co-led this process, which was really interesting. That would be. What were some of the takeaways that you got from the tribe leaders that were involved? I think it was always a, a reminder that, um, you know, this is land that was was theirs originally. Right. Whether we're talking offshore, actually where Cape Wind was proposed, as one example. Um, or the coastline, um, you know, up and down the Potomac River. I mean, these were all places that were tribal grounds um, before they were displaced, you know, years and years ago. And so it was really interesting to come back and sort of honor the fact that we're on the tribal land of such and such tribe for any given meeting. We would acknowledge that um, at the top of each discussion. And so, and also to have them in a co-lead seat um, where they should have always been, in my opinion, you know. Yeah, for for all of history. So it was it was U.S. Um, excuse me, it was federal, state, and then tribal co-led arrangements. Did were they able to bring some of their like ancestral knowledge? Right, those people have been on this land for ever and ever and ever. Like, were they bringing some of like this this ancient wisdom and kind of like bringing their know how with like all of the state and policy and scientific background and kind of meshing that? I think, um, you know, there's a lot of efforts to sort of incorporate traditional ecological knowledge, whether it's from the fishing community, which can be categorized that way, or the or the tribal communities. Um, there's also just a general philosophy that they are looking at managing or using an area seven generations ahead of the current one. Mm. And so how can you make sure whatever you're doing, I believe it's seven, multiple generations, far more longer than any, any um, you know, um, people really talk about day to day, at least in government. And so um, that's really interesting to really think about how are you um, managing your use of this fishery or this shellfish area in a way that seven generations from now, someone's going to have the same opportunity to use that resource. And so I think that was, was a pretty big eye opener for me personally. It really is. I feel like there's this discussion that's like becoming a trending topic now of sustainable versus like regenerative and I feel like seven generations looking that far into the future just lends a whole new weight to either one of those definitions hmm that's crazy to think about I love that they're involved though yes and so then there's a lot of um, legal arrangements for treaty rights and how all that actually happens at the end of the day you know um, as far as sharing fisheries and and having different consultations to different processes but this was one of the first experiences where I've seen the tribes being asked what they thought and and to have a voice in a more regular and ongoing fashion than sort of the one-off project review process. Right. Yeah. And now this document was formed several years ago. Is this a living document that's constantly added to and do these stakeholders still get together and like have their voices heard? So at the time, um, it was an executive order that launched the process, which the subsequent administration repealed. Um, so the work is still ongoing through the states because the states can still get together and um, discuss common issues and invite others to the table. Okay. So those discussions are still happening from a state-led way. And as I mentioned before, the relationships that were built across the table amongst all of those different um, agencies and stakeholders, I think, has definitely been withstanding. I still talk to a few of the stakeholders, actually, 
um, just to share different types of information. Um, and so at that point, I decided I needed a break from sort of the programmatic marine policy type work. And that's what led me to um, my current seat today at the Ocean Foundation. Yes, I love it. So, I mean, we chatted a little bit earlier about, you know, the Ocean Acidification Project, the redesigning plastic. I mean, some of these amazing initiatives. What is your favorite part about your job right now? I think that, you know, drawing on my interactions with individual philanthropists or foundations all across the history of my career that we just um, touched on, you know, I just saw that it really is about getting the resources together to um, do the work that hardworking people want to do and making sure that that's done in a multi-year way so that you're not writing a grant while you're doing the project at the same time, which is frankly how a lot of a lot of this work is funded. And it's it's really challenging. And so I wanted to be on the the side of the discussion that really tried to get the resources to the table um, for people on the ground to do do the do the projects. And so, you know, and on the individual philanthropist side, you know, I've had people say to me, well, you know, in my family, when I turn 18, I'm, I'm expected to have a social platform for what I want to do with our family's money. And I don't know what that is. And it's a very interesting conversation to have with, um, with um, some of these folks that they are expected to have a plan. And so some of what we do at the Ocean Foundation is advise donors on, you know, how to match their passion to a project on the ground that makes sense for them. Yeah, I, I was looking on the website and saw that. I mean, it was like, literally, we can work with you to create your own project. Uh, now, do you help create some of these projects? Or do you just kind of like match the Ocean Foundation with potential partners? So um, some of that, I think, is speaking to our fiscal sponsorship work. And so um, there is, if you do not have your own 501c3 nonprofit status, which means you cannot get tax deductible donations from US donors. Um, you can come to a fiscal sponsor, such as the Ocean Foundation, and for a you know a fee structure, we run the back office um, for that project. So we do the administration, the finance, the human resources, the insurance, all of that, so that they can focus on you know sea turtle conservation on the ground, what have you, gotcha. um, without going through the um, cost and bureaucracy of getting their own IRS five hundred one c three. Um, status. So, so that's a lot of about 50 of those across the world. Um, and we do fiscal sponsorship for projects that are aligned with our missions. So we're the only fiscal sponsor that is exclusively for marine and coastal projects. And that's also how we can further connect um, those colleagues with other people in our network. And then the other way we sort of do the matchmaking is if a donor has um, certain topics or geographic areas that they really want to protect and conserve, and then we know of, of projects that have that same need, then we can um, do that matchmaking and, you know, distribute a grant, for example, from that donor to that project on the ground. Matchmaking. I like it. We have, <laughs> I call, I called what Caitlin does uh, enabling and what you do is matchmaking. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I really like it. I mean, it's such important work and it's not, you know, it's not um, glamorous maybe on paper as most people like to think about, like, you know, listeners reach out to me. I want to be a marine biologist. A lot of people want to study dolphins or sharks, which is awesome um, and can Mm -hmm. be very glamorous. But the reality is you have to have funding from somewhere. And this is like a way that funding is funneled into marine projects. So I think this Mm -hmm. is, it's awesome. It's really great work that you're doing. Thank you. It's pretty fulfilling. I have a, I have a good group of people around me. <laughs> yeah. I bet. 
So I have a few questions here I like to ask um, as we kind of wrap up. So what does the ocean mean to you? I mean, it's definitely like the most, the the coast and the oceans are the most important place to me. It's very spiritual for me. Mm -hmm. Um, It's where, you know, I spent a lot of my childhood as an only child specifically sort of just wandering around, you know, a lot of, a lot of time to just sit with nature. It's where I go to make big decisions. I opened my acceptance letter to graduate school on the beach because I wasn't sure if I was going to get in and I was trying to figure out how to think through that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I got married on the beach. Um, As soon as my kids could crawl, they went to the beach and (laughs) crawled right into the waves. So it's always, it's like where I go for any big decision or any kind of emotional support. So I celebrate things there, but then I also go there, you know, when there's a passing of a loved one, for example. So it's kind of my center, I guess. Yeah, I resonate with that. (laughs) If you were to receive a blank check, and this question is really fascinating to ask you because you get lots of checks. Um, <laughs> or you see lots of checks, hopefully, right? So if someone was to give you a blank check for any, a project or projects up to three, what would you use the money for? Wow. Um, I think I would try to be audacious. So I think I would start at Key West <laughs> and I would get in a retro Airstream and drive all the way from Key West to Canada and I'd buy up all the coastal property and restore it to a natural coastline. Um, And I would make it all public access, Um, maybe with some hubs for affordable housing a little bit farther inland, Um, because I really think that if you want to develop, you know, an ethic of conservation among the public, people need to be able to see the resource and experience it in a long and ongoing way, not on a weekend trip or just through a a video or through a, through a book. Um, And so I think that that's what I would do. And it would take a long time to negotiate all those, pro- those property deals. <laughs> <laughs> but you said it was blank. So. <laughs> it's blank. It's blank. Fill it in whatever you need. I love it. I love it so much. I, yeah, that's, that strikes home. We're having a lot of development happening right now. And there's some properties that have been empty for years and years and years that are not mm-hmm. being developed. So it's a, uh, Yeah, I like that one a lot. (laughs) (laughs) What is one of your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be, I mean, I feel like for you, the field is different in that, like, sitting at the Mm -hmm. round table with all the stakeholders is kind of like the field, right? Like, Well, I think, yeah, I think I have, um, Actually, um, you know, you have those moments in your life where you're like, this is something I just want to remember and you sort of consciously log it. Yeah. Um, so when I was in, um, in college, I got to help with the marine mammal stranding project. Mm. And I remember um, being in an outdoor tank waist up in the water, um, a night shift, of course, because again, that's when you volunteer, you get assigned the 4 a.m. Yes. <laughs> shift um with like three other people and we were holding this stranded whale i think it was a pygmy sperm whale again this was a while ago um and i just remember it looking right at me because i was up toward its head and its eye was looking right at me and its chest i was holding my arms around this animal yeah and i could feel its heart beating and my heart beating because they were next to each other at different paces and like the blowhole is spraying in my face and 
we're just hoping this guy makes it. And I just remember um, just looking up and there was, it was outdoors. And so the stars were amazing because it was, you know, the middle of the night. And just remembering that this is one of those experiences that I definitely want to remember. So, yeah. so that would be my, my field experience for you. That's a great field experience. Did he make it? Did you follow up? Um, I'm not sure. I'm going to choose to believe that he did. <laughs> I like that. He made it. He's out frolicking the ocean now somewhere. <laughs> At the end of each episode, I like to leave my audience with a conservation as to go forth in the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode? I think always be willing to take risks and try new things, even if no one's done it before, if there's not a, a clear direction. Um, you know, you can always, there's always going to be another new idea and another new experience. And so um, I don't believe in the five-year plan question. <laughs> I don't have one. I literally don't know what I'm doing in five years from now. And so I think that it just makes life more exciting and adventurous. And if you want to be open to new opportunities, having that mindset is a healthy way to go. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or the Ocean Foundation, where's the best place to do so? Sure. Um, the Ocean Foundation website, um, which is oceanfdn.org. Um, and then on LinkedIn as well, if anyone's cool. on that platform. Yeah. And I'll put a link to all that in the show notes. Okay. Great. Awesome. Well, Kate, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.